White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 695. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started, all engines are started, we have ignition, 2, 1, 0, we have a liftoff, we have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area, it's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center, the second five is moving off the path, it is now clear the top. Hello again and welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and for this episode we present part two of my great conversation about the Chronicles of Amber and Roger Zelazny with Jonathan Knight of the All Roads Lead to Amber podcast. If you go back and check our previous episode, you will see the first half of our conversation where we left off in the middle talking about the various princes and princesses. Jonathan and I dealt the virtual cards out on the table and started discussing each of the brothers and sisters in detail. Had a lot of fun and here comes the rest of that conversation plus we get a little bit into what we would kind of like to see from the hopefully upcoming adaptation for television and or movies. Not exactly clear yet but here is the second half of the conversation with Jonathan of All Roads Lead to Amber. Uh, oh, here's one I'm really interested in your take on. Julian. So, you know, Julian's kind of, you know, his, his lane is that he's very stoic, um, and, uh, but he's got some great kind of dripping sarcasm, which is probably my favorite thing about him, especially inside of the unicorn when they're in the library and all that stuff's playing out with Brand. He's just, he's got some great lines in there. Um, but uh, he also changes. But what's interesting about him, I mean, of course, you know, the armor and he's on the giant horse and like the, with the wolf hounds and he's Arden is like where his soldiers are. And so he's kind of associated with the forest of Arden. So that's all kind of awesome from just like a movie poster perspective. Yes. Um, he's visually awesome. So like, you know, I, I grant that to, to and that's for me, the baseline, like they're all have something kind of awesome about them, you know, from that perspective. But what I like uniquely about him is, you know, his he appears to change, right? Corwin hates him and he hates Corwin, mm-hmm. but they have this incredible scene in hand of the Ob- in the hand of Oberon in the Forest of Arden where they start to work together and, you know, Corwin says, you know, you, you know, you've changed and Julian's kind of like, well, or maybe you never knew me, you know, and you get this sense of like actually maybe Julian was you know, again, a bit like Eric, it's, it's more Corwin's problem than it is Julian's problem. And, uh, you know, I kind of yeah. like that about him. But, um, yeah. yeah, you think of the horse, you think of the wolfhounds, you think of the bird, the hunting bird. And uh, that's all great stuff. He's a very proud guy. He knows he's kind of far down the pecking order of the brothers, but yet he really is proud. He has his things. And he just doesn't like being fooled with, doesn't like being messed with. He's he's one of the more unique ones to me. And and I agree, you hate him at first because Corwin hates him. But but then you as you learn more about him, you think he's an interesting guy. He'd be interesting to have a conversation with. Yeah, very interesting. Um, Gerard. Yeah, I mean a little one-dimensional. He plays you know an important role. Um, you know he's 
He's cool because he's got legendary strength. So he's a little bit like Benedict, who's legendary swordsman, the greatest mm-hmm. swordsman ever lived, etc. And then when Corwin fights him, like you say, you're kind of like, oh, wow. Gerard, same thing, you know, legendary strength. And then they find themselves in a fist fight uh, in Sign of the Unicorn. And so that's a, that's a nice setup, you know. Um, and in that case, Corwin gets the crap beat out of him. And Gerard is stronger than him. But it sort of requires that, you know, you put a sword aside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, big, strong guy, uh, grounded, you know, puts Amber above everything. You know, he's a little bit um, too easily kind of like fooled, right? So Brand ends up it's basically convincing Gerard, you know, that, that Brand's a good guy. And, you know, and, and then when Brand, like, uh, gets assassination attempt by Kane and they all trump out and Gerard blames Corwin for trying to kill Brand. Corwin's like, hey man, I was my idea to bring him back. Now I'm getting blamed for it. So he's mm-hmm. he's easily duped, I guess I would say, Gerard. Um, but he kind of knows that know. though, and so he's careful. You know what I mean? It's like he knows he's easily duped. He knows that he is, and so he it still happens, but he tries to avoid it. It's it's interesting. <laughs> That's funny. The other thing that makes me laugh about Gerard is he gets left behind. You know, at the mm-hmm. end uh, for the Patternfall War. Oberon's like, okay, no, you're going to stay and see to the safety of Amber, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the family goes off to fight. And at the end, you know, they contact Gerard when the Trumps become active again after the war is won and the storm's averted. And Corwin says, it's been years since we left and it'll be years more before we return. Somebody's got to tell that story, right? Yeah. What's Gerard doing for eight years As <laughs> by the himself and Amber? Yes. He's the... Uh... He's like Denethor in Lord of the Rings. He's running the castle by himself <laughs> while everybody's gone. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, and it, I think he's a good choice. I was going to say, he, I think he would not be a bad king. He'd need a good advisor, but, he'd, but, but he would make, I think, wise de- – he wouldn't make bad decisions. He might make uninformed or short-sighted decisions, but – I think everything he would do would be for the good of Amber and not for himself. He's like one of the few that you could say that, certainly. He's like kind of the Tim Cook after Corwin would be like Steve Jobs and, <laughs> and Gerard's kind of the Tim Cook. He's sort of like a COO type, right? I like that. He'd be a very, very competent COO of Amber. I'll, I'll take that because Tim Cook is a proud Auburn guy like me. So I'll, uh, I'll take a Tim Cook there. That's good. That's really good. Um, all right. Here's one certainly controversial. Kane. What do we even know about Cain? What do we make of him other than he's dead and then alive and then dead? He gets killed twice. Yeah, he gets killed twice. I um I like Cain because to me he's always a bit like um you know he's close enough in the succession that you 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 get the sense that he really thinks it could be his one day. Um, you know, Fiona says Cain had long term ambitions of his own. Uh, so we get that from her. Um, you know, he, initially he's a little bit like all of them, right? They're kind of one-dimensional as as initially presented, um, like literally one-dimensional. They're on cards. And then when we first meet them, they're kind of one-dimensional. Kane comes across as he's the double-crosser, right? Like he's just mm-hmm. the ultimate, you know, he double-crosses everybody. And so he can't be trusted. He's also associated with the C, um, you know, and I think that comes from Kane mutiny and then Kane, you know, with the boats and, and that's where I, I thought think of that but comes from, but it can't be, good. yeah, I can't be sure. Um, so he's, he's cool in that regard. And, and I, you know, 
he's presented at least in the Corwin Chronicles as the full brother of Eric and Corwin and, and Deirdre, that they were all four, the dark haired siblings of Oberon and Fiella. And the succession is, you know, Eric, who's a bastard. And then it goes to Corwin. And that's why he thinks he's got a better claim. He's born in wedlock. Then it goes to Cain, and then it goes to Deirdre, who dies in, you know, Fiella dies in childbirth at Deirdre, and then it, quote, swings over to the redheads with Clarissa and and them. And so in the Merlin Chronicles, Zelazny, like, blows all that up and says Cain is a full brother to Julian and Gerard. He puts the three of them. That's, yeah, so that's what I was we thinking, have a right? big yeah, we have a big problem in the in the family tree there. And I did a whole got a whole thing on my website. I've got like five page essay about just the whole sort of family <laughs> yes. tree of it and that inconsistency. Yeah. But I think it's essential to his character. And if I was like doing the official canon of Amber, I would probably argue that we need to kind of undo that thing that you know and just say Merlin got it wrong and put Cain back as a as a son of Fiella because there's something about him being that next one after Eric and Corwin that I mm-hmm. think really defines him, but it got all kind of mixed up. And then, yeah, it's the last thing he just kills him off a second time. And that's that. Yeah. It's, and this is another one of those things where I think that Zelazny had one thing in mind at one time, another thing in mind at a later time and just kind of contradicted himself. Cause yeah, I, when I think if you just asked me out of the blue, where does Kane fit in the family? I just said bottom third. But you're right that there was a whole thing where he was kind of upper third, more or less, because he thought he was going to. Yeah. So but he but the way he plays it through a lot of Nine Princes in Amber, though, is he's just one of the guys like Gerard who's guarding, you know, and Julian who's working for Eric and guarding the guarding the approaches to Amber. And so he doesn't seem to have any ambition beyond at that point, beyond just. I want to make Eric happy and keep getting my rewards for it, you know, and and um, and and is not really at all willing to deviate. Like Gerard was willing to negotiate with Corwin. Kane might have acted like it, but he was really, you know, totally going to screw him over. So, yeah, he is a fascinating guy, and and I there's yeah, I like that, like you said about him. That's that's interesting. Have we talked? Um, plus, I always think of the pointed shoes. Um, have we? <laughs> Have we talked enough about Brand, or is there anything left to say about him? I think we've talked a lot about him, and you know that's a that's a story that that'd probably be the first if I wanted a fan fiction of the whole mm. thing from someone else's perspective. I think I would start there. Interesting, yeah, interesting. He is fascinating. Yeah, I did not see him because he's so left out of the first couple of books that I really didn't see him becoming such an important character later on, but. I think Zelazny was probably glad when he changed the way the story was going in the second going into the third book, which is my sense of what he did. I think he was probably glad to have an unused card to play, if you'll pardon the expression. I think that was pretty – my sense is that was pretty deliberate. And, and the first one is, is Benedict, right? Um, and he, he kind of does it in all five books. So yeah. he, he's in, the, in Nine Princes and Ambers, he kind of deals the family out a few times. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, it's pretty obvious because every, nobody knows where Brand is. He keeps saying, well, what about this person? What about this person? And everybody finally goes, well, Benedict, we think he's dead. And Brand, I don't know. And then he asks somebody else, and they all go like, well, this is what's going on. And Benedict, we're not sure. Maybe he's dead. And Brand, we haven't seen him. And so after a while, <laughs> I, I think back, like, was I that thick that I didn't kind of go like, maybe maybe Brand is important. 
Uh, but it's true. He was saving him. But at first he was saving Benedict. And that's such an amazing moment in mm. Guns of Avalon when, you know, the tent and he pulls back the flap of the tent and he describes the guy with the stump and the jaw and the hair. And you're like flipping back to Nine Princes going like, who is that? <laughs> and that's Benedict. So he saved that. And that kind of like frames that second book. You know, the comeback of Bran frames the third book. The comeback of Oberon really frames the fourth book. You know, and then in the fifth book, it's a little bit of just Corwin's journey, and and there's a little bit of like Merlin and Martin, like are, are the newcomers. But yeah, I think he's quite sophisticated, and and if he planned anything out, it might have been like like you say, you know, I'm gonna stick that card in my back pocket uh, with mm-hmm. with Brand and with Benedict. Yeah, having an unused piece that he could put out on the board, I think, was a very handy thing. It seemed like to me. All right, we're getting close to the last of them. Random. Yeah, random's cool, right? Like we all like random. I think he serves this, um, you know, interesting. Well, first of all, in retrospect, through today's land, I mean, he's a real dick. Like he's he's you know he's really he's misogynistic. Like he's um, very self centered, and and I think what's cool about him is that he almost, from like a literary device perspective, he serves to make Corwin look a little better because Corwin's not that much better like he's also misogynistic he's kind of a jerk he was a tyrant when he ran Avalon Uh, he hates all of his siblings and it turns out like probably not for all that great reasons other than he's just like really full of himself and overly ambitious and so he's he's kind of a jerk and he goes on an incredible redemption story and that's that's the story of the Chronicles of Amber right Um, but random in some ways serves as this kind of like oh even worse Right. And and yet Random's arc is even bigger than Corwin's. He starts off even worse and he ends up as the king. The king. So it's kind of cool. And I think it brackets Corwin's journey a little bit, like a little bit more of an extreme version of what of what Corwin goes through. I'm going to posit this and you tell me what you think. I think that Random is one of the best things about the Merlin books because we get to see how he's doing in that job. And we find out he's doing pretty darn well. So, like, all of his appearances, and he's in a lot of the Merlin books, are kind of like a confirmation that the unicorn was right in the Courts of Chaos to pick him. I agree with that. No, he's a solid king. Um, We get a a look under the hood in the Merlin Chronicles at the administrative aspect of the job, the political aspect of the job. I think in the Corwin Chronicles, the King of Amber, the job is a little bit simplified through the lens of war, you know, Mm -hmm. like the job of a King of Amber is to fend off people attacking you (laughs) and then to ultimately be attacked by, uh, you know, a dark enemy that you then have to like, you know, field an army and take the battle to their, you know, and, 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 and that's, you know, that's the stuff that they needed Oberon to come back and do right. Like save Amber. But then random as King, he shows you this different side of the job, you know, that, that, and you know, it's. I like it, and in some ways, I I find it a little diminishing as well. Uh, you know, um, that 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 a king of amber is like going around worrying about the details of a treaty with with some minor shadows. And the that's a fair point. That. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, he Wouldn't kind of he redu- just delegate he that reduces. Just, doesn't he have a secretary of state? I know. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely. Right. I hadn't thought about it, and you're absolutely right that in the first book, being king of amber seems like you're god of the universe and the greatest thing ever, and in the Merlin books, it seems like you're basically the the civil service. It's a much less glamorous job 
than we are led to believe it's going to be in the first few books. And I think that's probably why Random does such a good job at it, is because maybe the Ran- maybe the Unicorn knew that they would be entering into a phase where there's not going to be a lot of big wars. It's going to be more about trade and economics and stuff, and Random would do better at that. I don't know. But, I mean, he, he is. He does a good job with it. I can't see... There's a lot of them I can't see doing a very good job. They've been bored to death, right? Most yeah, of the brothers would be bored to death. You need a, sometimes you need a wartime king. Sometimes you need a peacetime king. Yeah. You know? it's a, he's a unifier, and that's kind of what they all needed after after years and years of infighting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good choice. What do you think about – is there a parallel between uh, – and again, I'm not an expert on the George R. R. Martin books, but do you think there's a parallel between uh, what is it, Bran Stark who gets picked at the end – uh, and and random getting picked by the unicorn. <laughs> well, we don't know if that's going to happen in the books because obviously that's what, ah, that. Okay, that, I'm just that, talking about the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that book hasn't come out yet and may never come out. But uh, in the show, yeah, that's. I think that's probably. I hadn't thought about it till you said it, but um, yeah, I think there's something to that. Probably so because there's certainly a lot of influences uh, for sure. Yeah, probably so. Probably so. Let's see. We haven't done a couple of others. Deirdre. I struggle with that one a little bit, and here's why. Um, first of all, like, not she's a little bit cast in that sexist, one-dimensional, like, damsel in distress. When we first meet her, she's tied to a stake, and, mm. you know, you're just kind of going in retrospect, really, a princess of amber tied in a stake with four, like, lousy guards. Exactly. Know, campfire. Like, it just doesn't make any sense in retrospect. Um, you know, also, like, why, you know, what is the story with her and Eric? Is Eric really keeping her prisoner and trying to kill her like i don't i don't know if i totally buy that in retrospect either i think um you know she's she's got roots in mythology and it's deirdre the sorrows and if you want to go read kind of where where her character kind of comes from and then that part of nine princes and ambers the last thing just goes really deep into the irish mythology and moira and rebma and and Tiernan Nogath is first mentioned in there and you have like a bunch of like Irish mythology that, you know, Lear knows where Benedict's bones are. Like it's just so much Irish stuff in there. And I think Deirdre kind of kicks that off for him. Um, But here's what I, here's what I really struggle with. I think the reason the Corwin Fiona relationship works so well in kind of books three and four and, and even into books five and and Corin and Fiona are you know they're right at the very end of the whole thing. She she balances Corwin, you know, like Fiona does. Like mm-hmm. she, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, like she, that she she provides stuff he doesn't have, and 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 she does stuff that he doesn't have. And but I think with Deirdre, they're just so alike. Yeah. That as a literary device, like we don't really want to see scenes with them together. And you know what? We don't even get any of them because what would their conflict be what would their you know so i think that that's as you know and corwin tells us he loves her more than life itself he oh, loves yeah. her more than and when she dies like he's he wants to kill himself but there's no evidence of that throughout mm-hmm. the stories and when he comes back after four years of being you know blinded imprisoned and fighting the wars and everything and he's back on top and like you know he didn't want to go have lunch with deirdre and you know he's, he's supposed to be madly in love with her and his favorite person of all time so I think it's just uh, I, I struggle with that one a little. I think that she allows Corwin to be in love with himself. It's his it's his own narcissism embodied in a character. Um, because yeah, he he tells us how great she is. He tells us that we should love her, 
but we never are shown why we should. And in fact, we're shown some reasons why we shouldn't. And what you say there makes me think, you know, if Zelazny could have written like a side book with other characters, like you talked about a brand book or whatever, I would love a Deirdre book where we find out that she engineered all that. She had herself tied up so that he and Random could rescue her because she was running some secret scheme through Amber, you know, and... And she was actually more on top of things and not just a victim, but she played the victim because she knew that's how Corwin would be sympathetic to her and help her in her plan. And then it got messed up because he didn't have his memories. And that would work, right? Because she's very surprised when he says he doesn't know who who he is and who she is and all that. And it's kind of like she's like, oh, well, this throws everything into a new light, right? Because if he had been himself and been the older, more selfish, scheming Corwin, that might have fit into the, her secret plans. You see what I mean? I'm just kind of making stuff up, but I just think it fits her character there is maybe there was there's some more depth that could have been exploited and maybe she was taking advantage of, she, maybe she thought she was taking advantage of a Corwin that no longer existed. Just my thought. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that would be a cool way to go. Yeah. And then she ends up just kind of hanging out in Redma with Luella yeah. after that. But the, I think there's something about Deirdre and Eric that's unsaid, unexplored, and that would probably tie into your idea there mm-hmm. that she's got some scheme or, you know, or maybe she thinks she could be queen or, or, or maybe like she's got something on Eric and, and then, yeah, like suddenly Corwin without memory just kind of throws it all up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. It would fit. It would fit. Well, uh, let's see the last two of the main ones, Eric, we talked about him a little bit. I think, I think he's the hero of his own story. This is just not his story is the problem. I think if you were going to do a show, to me, who you would cast as Eric would be really important because you need him to be the villain in the early, you know, mm-hmm. part of the journey of Corwin. You need you, you do need him to be the villain. Like it, it you can't and and you can't play him as like actually a good guy that Corwin just like doesn't like. Otherwise, I think a viewer would get really confused. But I think if there's an actor that could do that in a way that leaves it open, that you know he could both be a villain, but ultimately we kind of find out actually no, he's he's pretty much a good guy who maybe got a little bit power hungry. Um, and so you'd need someone that could deliver some of the lines that Eric delivers, and yet leave open that he's, you know, actually a mature older brother doing the right thing. So, uh, yeah, I would love to be a fly on the wall as they try to figure out who to cast for that. Because yeah, I think I if you do, if you go and make him just like an over-the-top, like stereotypical mad prince, evil, you know, villain, it just it doesn't work. It'll work for a little while, and then it all of a sudden falls apart, yeah. Because it has to be somebody that could be the hero of his own show. But just because he's not in his own show, <laughs> he doesn't get to do that. That's right. No, that's good. You have any thoughts on Corwin that we haven't explored already? We're kind of down to our main man here. I mean, you know, I think I think the thing about Corwin is the journey of redemption, you know, which I've said, and and I think it's also his, you know, he's he's action man, you know, it's it, he just is always a man with a plan. The yeah. one thing we haven't said that I might mention is that. His, a lot of times he's got a bad plan. Like he, he doesn't always have the best plan, and he's one of those guys that like wants to be the hero sometimes mm-hmm. when maybe he's a little out of his element, you know. Yeah. And um, and he, ultimately Oberon has to step in 
you know. And I think Oberon, if Corwin could have figured it all out on his own and, and you know, gotten the jewel and solved it and taken the fight to, to chaos and killed Brand and, you know, Oberon probably would have been happy to, to watch him do that and, and would have been really proud. But there's a moment, you know, and I think it's around when Brand has got the jewel and then he's going to, like which, by the way, is kind of Corwin's fault. And then, you know, Bran needs to attune himself to the jewel so that he can destroy the universe. And they've got to stop him from attuning attuning the jewel. So they've got all the patterns under guard, Tyrion and Rebma, the one in Amber. And Corwin's big idea is that he's going to wait for the moon to come up and walk up the steps to Tyrion and Nogath, you know, which is going to take like an hour. Yeah. And he's going to walk through the city of Amber, which is like another hour, and then eventually get to the palace and go all the way down, you know, which is like another hour. And then finally he's in the pattern room to stop Brand, who, of course, would have been, if, if not all the way through, like most of the way through the pattern by then. That's his big idea, and it takes Oberon as Ganelon to say, okay, actually, we're going to have Benedict already there. You're going to be here. You know, I got the metallic arm thing all figured out. And, and you know, Corwin on his own can't actually solve the problems. And, uh, and we see that actually several times. But what we love about him is that he never gives up and he learns from his mistakes and he keeps going. And um, so I think he's identifiable in that way. Like, we, you know, nobody likes a perfect hero. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we often will say competent is one of the first words out of our mouth about Corwin Mm. and he's competent when it's just like mano a mano and it's just him and his sword or his muscles and his wit but when it gets to like a more more complicated uh problems he he needs help and that's kind of fun (laughs) well they say you know the main thing about Rocky from the Rocky movies is he just he's not maybe the best fighter the most technically proficient fighter whatever but he just never gives up he never quits he just keeps chugging along like a train, and that's pretty much Corwin. They throw everything in the multiverse at him across these books, and he just doggedly keeps on. He, he eventually creates his own universe just in case his plans don't work out, you know, as a backup. So it creates its own problem. So, yeah, I, I, I love the idea that he's, just, he's a bard, right? He's a fighter, but he, tell, he sings songs and stories about it, and that he... Um, he just doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He doesn't take no for an answer, and he keeps going. He just you can't take him down. He he's he's yeah. It's great. Um, I was going to ask you one more, Merlin, because I'm really curious what your thoughts are about him, given our ambivalence about his story. Yeah, I mean, like I said, my biggest challenge there is that he doesn't have any ambition or, or strong objectives, and and the things that he wants are, um, you know, they're just a little more subtle and nuanced and they don't make for his compelling action yeah. and you know and and you know he doesn't want to be king and amber he doesn't want to be king and chaos people want that for him mm-hmm. and he's a pawn in other people's stories um and but there's something in there about his quest to find out what happened to his father that you know in some ways i think you know it, it didn't it didn't really get developed until like the later Merlin Chronicles it's it's and and it's a little bit missed in the first I mean obviously he talks about his father a couple times and he wants to know what happened to my father and he you know he'll ask random do you know do you know what became my father nope uh he'll ask Bill Roth do you know what became my father nope and that's about it um it turns out what happened to Corwin is you know is pretty cool with Dara and like all of that and Mm -hmm. and so I, I I feel like there was an opportunity there to have Merlin be on a more 
direct mission to find his father and, and, and to make more out of that. There's something about Ghost Wheel. He develops this machine. You know, he's that's very proactive on his part. But it, it, it just, like, gets a little lost, you know, in yes. all the stuff that's going on. The Merlin Chronicles are quite complicated, right? Yes. You've got Luke all over and all the place. Stuff. Just sprawled all over the place. Yeah. It's not focused. So, yeah, it's unfocused. And I think he could have been he could have been more focused. I I think what's nice to say some positive things is that he's well differentiated from Corwin. I just That's did true. a little bit on my website about drinking in Amber and you know, Corwin drinks wine and booze. And to excess, and Merlin drinks beer, and he'll turn down drinks a lot. And it, it's in the, there's some fun little ways in which Zelazny's really setting him up as, you know, the next generation and kind of his own man. Like he, he's a, he's more anti-authoritarian, right? Like he's anti-establishment, mm-hmm. and um, you know, whereas Corwin kind of represents, you know, the, the ultimate establishment, the hierarchy, male hierarchy, mm-hmm. you know, succession. And so I think there's some really strong and fun differences between them that he, you know, he could have fallen into the trap of like, oh, he's too much like Corwin. He definitely didn't do that. So I think no. there's, there's positive there, too. I've got to ask you this. When you were reading the Merlin books as they came out like me, were you waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Corwin to ever show up? Uh, totally. Yeah. And, uh, Where is he? Where is, and I was a little Corwin? disappointed in the end. He finally yeah. shows up, but he's kind of a pattern ghost. And then that dilutes things a little bit. And then he yeah. finally finds a real one. Um, I, I, I think, I think you're right. And in retrospect, it was underdeveloped the search for Corwin. Um, I thought even before reading the first before reading Trump's of Dooms, I thought he was going to go into Corwin's universe yes. with the second oh, yes. series. That you know? was so obvious that, that yes. <laughs> And and all that the, all that the other universe really did was just create a a problem with the pattern in the Logris, really, right? It just made the pattern too strong, and kind of caused the pattern Logris conflict. But we never really see any of that, other than they just appear occasionally and throw lightning at each other or whatever. And you're like, oh my gosh, the pattern in the Logris, and then they go away, and you're like, okay, you know, it's like, well, that's not quite the same thing as having an adventure, you know, with them or going there and doing stuff and all, yeah. So. Um, I, oh, here's here's a fun question I have for you. I got, I got a handful more. I won't take, try to take up all night with you, but this has been a really this has been a blast so far, and I hate for it to end. If you were an amberite, what would your colors be? Oh, that's a great one. <laughs> I I think I would be in the. <laughs> that's a great one. <laughs> well, if yeah, <laughs> that's a great one. If you'd ask my wife, I think she'd say blue. I I think something in kind of the orange space would be me. <laughs> I would definitely be na- uh, burn orange and navy blue, obviously, because my wardrobe is already all burn orange and navy blue as a big Auburn guy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, but yeah, so uh, that's the combination of what my wife would want and what I would want. There, there you go. go. All right. Well, we're, we're maybe maybe we have the same uh, mother from uh, from Oberon. Maybe that would be <laughs> it. Um, so you've just looked at all five of the books. Which one is your favorite, and and which one is your least favorite, and why? Nine Princes is my favorite. It was. Back then, it still is today, and having gone through it line by line, it, it still is um, for like all the reasons we've mentioned. Just sort of the way in um, in the opening chapters, the way into all of it, um, and you know the incredible like swiftness with which he 
like mounts an army and joins forces with blaze and marches up colvier and then gets you know and that that all that battle stuff is incredible and the boats and burning of garneth and and then just the coronation scene and the blinding and then all the stuff in the jail cell so much and then and then the escape you know the inevitable escape and how's he gonna do it his eyes grow back and you're like oh my god and then you know uh dworkin and it's uh you know and then the lighthouse of cabra and then it's like i'll be back you know and it's long before uh arnold schwarzenegger and the terminator corwin says i'll be back it's so great so there's just no beating that i think um least favorite is always tough i I, you know i would have probably said courts of chaos uh a couple of decades ago um uh it's hard to pick a least favorite now i think you know it would be a tie between um Guns of Avalon and, and Hand of Oberon for least. I mean, for me, it's Nine Princes and then Sign of the Unicorn. Um, I think, you know, Guns of Avalon is, for me, you know, maybe I'd put that at the bottom. It's so hard, though, because there's so much amazing stuff in there, but it's um, it's a little darker, and he gets off the beaten path a bit. I want him to get revenge. I want him to kind of, you know, and, and of course it makes sense that he has to go on this side quest, but the side quest, I think, goes on a little too long before he gets back onto the main quest um you know and it's also dark there's not as much you know hope in that book um not as much kind of like you know can't hear you know this the soundtrack to guns of avalon would be dark you know and the soundtracks to some of the other books would be you know more heroic um so yeah that's that's my take and and like i said like you i think as i've gotten older and read more the courts of chaos like rises up and gets more credit than than i initially gave it yeah i agree if if only for the last couple of chapters the course of chaos but i just love the whole journey i love all the weird things that he encounters with star uh as they travel through the uh the various realms of shadow i just i love all that i love corin off on his own on a horse encountering weird stuff the dwarves that try to eat them and everything i just oh it's awesome but uh that i love that chapter so much i read it so many times my theory is if these book if if Nine Princes and Amber were written today, it would be eight hundred pages long just by itself. All the stuff that happens in it, right? It's like you said, it's it's almost a synopsis of a much longer book, so fast paced. And um, if if it were written today and Nine Princes were like a five hundred page giant fantasy novel, I think that um, Guns of Avalon and Sign of the Unicorn together would be volume two, and Hand of Oberon and Courts of Chaos would be volume three, and it'd be a trilogy. Because I think there's enough material in Nine Princes to be a whole one-third, like Fellowship of the Ring, right? And then I think you can combine the next two and the next two and make a, and make, and make a big fantasy trilogy out of it. And it would honestly probably be selling better because people look at these little thin books and think, oh, you know, I want a big fantasy. I want, you know, they want these big doorstops these days. They don't want the little thin you know, books like we had when we were kids. So unfortunately, the, that's another thing I think that's hurt the, the the livelihood of the you know the longevity of the series is the books are so small you know and it's it's an appealing thing for us in one way but I think that the today's audience wants the Harry Potter the you know the mm-hmm. ice and fire they don't want these little little extended novellas and Course of Chaos is a is a long novella it just is so you know uh, but he was a short That's story writer yeah he was a short story writer primarily so it's not surprising that even his novels are short. And most of them are. Just a thought. Um, 
But yeah, I think that Nine Princes and Courts of Chaos are kind of tied now. It always used to be Nine Princes, but I think those two together are tied. And Courts of Chaos was so influential on me the last couple of times I read it that when I wrote Baranak, that's the one that I sent to you, I sent you a copy. When I wrote Baranak in like 2015 or 2016, somewhere in there, I was really kind of trying to channel the energy of the Courts of Chaos all the way through that book. And uh, I'm curious if you ever get a chance to read it, what you think about that, because I really tried to pull that into it. I'm not all the way through it, but I have started it, and that comes through, you know, right away. It's just the missing father and the son, and and uh, all that kind of like dynamic, and the the warring tribes and the aunts and uncles, and uh, so. But um, you know, it's that Amber influence is is already there in the first couple chapters. I was hoping you'd encounter the when he meets all the family in the room, and uh, that was one of my favorite things to write was coming up with siblings, as you can imagine, right? Coming up, I I never. I never lied and said that this wasn't like my little tribute to, to Amber for sure in, in part of my series. Um, other Zelazny stuff, you said you're not a huge Zelazny fan overall, but I did want to ask you, do you have the six-volume Nesfa series by any chance? I don't. I'm going to embarrass myself if you just start asking too many questions about other Roger I, works. I won't. Um, I won't. I'm just <laughs> curious. That right there to me is the Holy Grail. I mean, um, I got those six as they were coming out. And and they're glorious, right? They don't have Amber in them really, other than the short stories. They do have the short stories, and I know that um, Warren Lapine has been putting out the short. He put out the short stories in a volume too, so you can still get them now. But the Nesfa books, I the do New have England, those. yeah, the New England science fiction, those hardcovers. There's six hardcovers that have everything Zelazny wrote in short story over the years. The fact that they were able to get all those things and get them all in one series together is mind-boggling, and. Uh, I guess Chris Kovacs wrote like a biography that runs through them. There's a bibliography. I have the the bibliography book that has all the covers and everything. I mean, if you if you're a Zelazny fan out there listening and you don't have those, uh, and you want to get into his other stuff, that's definitely the way to go because those are beautiful books. They're not cheap. They weren't cheap when they were new, and I'm sure they're even more expensive now. Thank goodness I got them when they were to be had, but they're amazing. Um, I agree so, on the Kovacs book. I mean, when I was doing yeah. the podcast, I was drawing upon the Kovacs book quite a bit. And, you know, in retrospect, I wish I had gone deeper on some of those other, you know, reference materials. There's actually quite a bit out there. And like you say, Warren, I just got his book, Imer's Laz, oh, know, which yeah. is a thousand pages. And I got to uh, get that. Yeah. Uh, you know, in some ways, I wish I'd you know, gone through more of that before I started the podcast. But, you know, again, for me, it was about Amber more than it was about Roger. Um, but there is so much to know and, and to learn about him that goes beyond Amber. And, uh, you know, just like what an incredible body of work. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, his other stuff. I've never gotten into quite as much. I mean, I love his writing, but like the, the Dilvish stories don't do it quite as much for me. They don't pull me in and hold me like the Amber books do. The, um, the hangman series doesn't quite grab me the way that the Amber did. They're all good. And I mean, he's such an incredible writer, but none of them has that magnetism to me that the Amber stuff does. And that's just how it's going to be. All right. Our last topic, and I will let you go about your life, sir, but I sure have enjoyed this and I sure appreciate you coming on, but we've got to talk about the idea of a TV series and or movie, whatever. And I just want to know, just run with it. My first, I'm I'm going to tell you a couple of questions. You can kind of go with it. One is why haven't we seen anything before? Because this seems ready made now. All right. We can, we can agree that there are things about it that every year gets more problematic, right? If you'd made this back in the 70s, nobody would have thought anything. Now we're to the point where people are going to be like, oh, you know, I don't know about that. You know, how you do the women, how you do the, you know, whatever. 
to, so why is it though that they haven't ever done anything before because they've done everything else now except this it just drives me crazy everything that's ever been in fantasy and science fiction has a movie or TV show except Amber it's like the only thing left it seems like and what would need to be changed to do it right now I think um, I mean I think there's a couple problems that just probably make it hard for for writers right out of the gate tackling the material first it's it's a first person story told by you know the quote unreliable narrator and you know when you're reading it it's like we talked about like how do you play Eric uh, when you know Corwin's first impression of him is is different than he actually turned out to be like how do you play some of these scenes when it turns out Corwin's memory of it is is different than you know and I think that's like hard but not undoable you know we have all these murder mysteries now like it's a very popular genre and I think in a lot of ways you know the first few books of the Corwin Chronicles are kind of a murder mystery certainly Sign of the Unicorn is a murder mystery and we get a little bit of like you know it, it's who shot out Corwin's tires right like that's the overarching dramatic question of the first five books and you know we get different versions of that as you go along and it's a little bit like those movies that as they start to wrap up or like a heist movie where you kind of thought it all went one way and then they quickly show you what really happened and you're like oh the guy was on the computer the whole time or like oh he had the thing in his pocket and we never knew about that so there's there's got to be and i'm not a writer screenwriter anything like that but there's got to be some you know, those types of mechanics to draw upon to, to kind of pull off this unreliable first person narrator thing. But I think that's probably hard. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that I think is hard is, um, you know, is, is the mon the internal monologues, right? Like a lot of the greatness of, of what we love about Amber is just sort of told through these, you know, these internal monologues and how do you, while there's incredible dialogue and there's amazing action sequences, a lot of the the core of what we love about it is stuff that he just tells us himself as, as the reader. So, you know, and that's a little bit tied to the first person problem. I think, you know, those are issues. Um, it's dated, you know, but that to me is easy. You know, there's two, there's two aspects of being dated. It's one is that it's literally set in, you know, 1970 or whatever, when it kicks off and do you quote update it. Right. And then there's the second issue of just kind of, you know, gender norms and just the way that like, um, you know, the women aren't portrayed, but you know, that's like make random into a female character, you know, like make Deirdre a badass and like multidimensional, like get to Dara sooner. You know, I mean, I think there's, mm -hmm. it, he redeems himself as a writer as he moves through, um, you know, and Fiona and Dara are, are pretty interesting by the end of it. Right. So I, I, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I think that where you said it is like, I think a little bit to do with time differential if you want to go there, right? Like time moves faster on Earth. So if you start in the 70s and then Corbin goes off and does his stuff and then he goes back and, you know, it, 10 years have gone by, 15 years have gone yeah. by, and now it's sure. the 80s, now it's the 90s. You could kind of have fun with that. That's a great um, idea. That's a great idea. You know, if you were deliberate about it, right, and you're just like, oh, Bill Roth's 10 years older now and they're trying to kind of make something out of that. Um mm -hmm. But otherwise, you know, yeah, like it's kind of I think it'd be kind of cool to start. I always wanted the movie to start like in the car, you know, and it's like an eight, you know, eight track cassette in some old like Ford. And he's like 
driving through a rainy forest. He's, you know, because he's escaped from the hospital from Porter Hospital, not not Greenwood. And and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, bang, bang, the shot, you know, shots fire and the tires blow out and the car screeches and crashes into the lake. And, you know, and then he just kind of wakes up in the hospital. But I think you could kind of set the the period, you know, with the car, the radio, maybe the news is on or something. And, um, yes. you know, Stranger Things has, has done an amazing job with, with sort of taking the time period and kind of making it a character, um, the way the eighties just became, you know, and Kate Bush is number one pop, you know, at the top of the charts again. And so I think you could kind of do something like that, um, with Amber in the seventies, if you wanted to don't have to, but, um, I like to think that these are just really hard problems that are going to require really good writers, really convicted producers, you know, people who just really love the material and want to be true to it, but also recognize their problems need to be solved and not give up on it. Um, And maybe it's just really hard to get top talent to really focus on these things, you know, for a you know, extended period of time, develop a real canon. I don't know if you've got to get the family to buy in. I don't have any idea what those dynamics are like. Right. Um, but those those are kind of the things. You know, there's some plot hole things like too that you would have to work out that we tolerate as you know, but viewers of a show aren't, aren't going to tolerate. Um, so yeah, I think it's just it's hard it's hard work, but I, I really hope it's work that someone finds worth doing. How do you feel about Stephen Colbert being involved? I mean, amazing. He's clearly, you know, a genuine fan of, of sci-fi fantasy. Like he's very, wears it on his sleeve. You know, he talks like Lord of the, love for Lord of the Rings is like, you know, well-known. And, and, uh, you know, I think he's like probably a, a genuine fan. Um, and he just brings star power to it. Right. So it can only be good because again, it's not really my business. I'm in the video game business, but it, it's all about talent. It's all about getting the best writers and the best producers and, and the best concept artists. And, you know, the best in the business are, are in demand and they're in demand on other projects. And so, you know, that's going to be their trick is raising enough money to get access to really good writers, producers, artists, musicians, everything. And so a guy like Colbert can be like, Ooh, well, if he's sponsoring this, maybe I should take another look but you're going to have to convince a lot of agents and a lot of people that this will be good for their careers. And, um, you know, I think Hollywood's probably full of like, you know, B writers, but true a, a plus writers, you know, they're in high demand. They're being well paid by Disney to write for Marvel or whatever it is. And you're going to have to get those people to make this really fly. Yeah. Um, if, if we could end up with something similar to the Netflix Sandman series, that to me would be the dream come true. Just the, the, yeah, they've quality. done an amazing job with that. That's yeah. I I think it could be bigger. I think it could be a little more mainstream than that. Personally, um, I think it sits somewhere between that and and kind of a superhero movie. Mm. You know, you wouldn't want to go obviously um, tonally. You wouldn't want to go for superhero, but at the same time, like they are kind of superheroes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, I found myself reading through the books, especially like courts of chaos when they all come together and it feels a little like a marvel in game kind of moment you know you mentioned that and in your podcast yeah and i was like yes that's that's it is that's right it's like they're yeah, it's all so there cool, right when they all yeah. come in and you're like oh you got wakanda over there yes. and you got like absolutely you know, um iron man spider-man there and then you know mm-hmm. it's um just like that image of like oh blaze showed up with his guys and you mm-hmm. know benedict's over there and 
but they are superheroes in a way, but they're human also. So I think, and I think shadow shifting, right? Like that is very um, magical. And so there's a little bit of like Dr. Strange in there. Um, I, I think we haven't really, um, do you, you know that movie? Um, what's the Christopher Nolan movie? Um, Inception. Mm-hmm. To me, that was kind of one of the closest things to shadow shifting that I've seen yeah. in a movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like it's a little bit more maybe sci-fi than this would be, but you've got to figure out how to, how to do that in a way that's, it's going to be expensive, but I think it's a little more, yeah, I think it's a little more superhero, you know, than, than, than it is like, you know, sort of a, a gritty, I worry that there's a default to Game of Thrones, like, oh, it's just like Game of Thrones, siblings fighting over a vacant throne, yeah. and George R. R. Martin was influenced by Amber, and so that's what it is. And I, I just, in my mind's eye, it's not a, Amber is not like a castle and sort of a medieval thing, and uh, it's not a Winterfell or even a King's Landing. That's just, it's, to me, that's too realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this world is it's a multiverse. It's a blend of sci-fi fantasy. Um, and, and it's very, it's magic, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of magic. Like there's yeah. some magic in game of Thrones, obviously, but this world is, 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 it's like this intersection of magic, sci-fi fantasy. And it's, uh, we all kind of can see it in our head, but we can, if you told us to draw it on a picture, we'd probably all have different versions of it. So I think it's going to be hard. You know, there's a risk that it could be corny, you know, if you do, like it's, um, it's going to take a really talented team to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. I thought for obviously many years about how would you even approach it, right? How would you find the handle on it? How would you break it down into that kind of a story? Because, you know, like with something like game of Thrones, you just break down the story. It's not that hard. You just basically film the books, you know, you just leave some stuff out, compress some stuff, rearrange some stuff. It's not that hard. But with Amber, you have to restructure it. You have to literally restructure the entire story from a first-person short set of novels into probably a more third-person, probably, right? There's not, you know, how else would you do it? It's just, there's, it's going to take a lot more reconception, if that's a word. You know, a lot more restructuring up front. There's a lot more work up front, I would say, that has to be done. And here's the thing I worry about, too is what happened to John Carter. Do you know that John Carter came out on the 100th anniversary of when it was written? It took 100 years to get it into live action. And by the time the movie came out, everything it had ever influenced in science fiction, which was like 90% of science fiction, had already come out. And people looked at John Carter and said, I've seen all this a million times. And I don't want Amber to come out and people to go, I've seen all that a million times, you know, because this, I don't want to have to, sp- in 2012, I had to spend too much time telling people, no, this came first. When when <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring came out, I had to tell people, no, Gandalf came out before Dumbledore. Oh, Dumb- Gandalf is just <laughs> ripping off Dumbledore. And I'm like, ah, pulling my hair out. I don't want to go through John Carter, Lord of the Rings, a third time where I'm having to say, no, Corwin goes back from before Game of Thrones, from before, you know, whatever. So I really, hopefully they can not only do it well, but make it different enough that it it doesn't have people saying, oh, this is ripping off stuff that came out after it, <laughs> you know? So, huh. 
Yeah, I think the you know the multiverse shadows you know substance the one true world all other worlds are shadows and you know the members of the royal family have magical powers and magical blood and they can they can shift shadow and they can imagine whole worlds and then go to them um and they're not even sure if they're creating those worlds in their minds that those worlds are there and they've just found a way to get there there's like a philosophy to all of it um Mm -hmm. and there's ultimately this bigger power you know the bigger struggle between order and chaos that's playing out you know kind of at a like you know more sort of godlike plane of existence and i think like that definitely separates it from game of thrones and you know a lot of these other things so I, I think you've got the warring siblings fighting for a vacant throne, which will feel to people like, oh, they just stole that and we'll all go, no, no, George R. Yes. R. Martin, you know, was got it from him. But I think if they can mix in, you know, the multiverse from what is typically kind of superhero movies now with that um, and then still capture like the sense of humor and, and you know, the character of Corwin. And, and he becomes a great hero. Everybody falls in love with like the intersection of those things I think would be unique. Yeah. I like to think so. And I, and like you say, and then, can... you know, the characters change over time and you don't always get that, you know, we get that with like, yeah. um, mm-hmm. some, you know, you get that with like Jamie Lannister or whatever. Um, who I think Jamie Lannister, and again, I'm only a, like a show fan, so like don't don't throw me uh, too much under the bus for that. But like <laughs> I've always felt like Jamie Lannister was an Amber character, maybe more than any of them. Um, but he does change. But, but like with Amber, that's you know that's the whole thing. These characters are undergoing like massive change, and it's cool. Like the message is, you can be alive for two thousand years and yet still you know change and and mature and get. And, and get better, you know, as a person. Like, that's kind of a cool message that I think, you know, there's the whole Im- immortality. We didn't even talk about the whole immortality thing. Like, that's, that's right. You know, that's a whole segment. And I think that's unique. We do see that, right, in some other areas, but bringing that into the kind of Game of Thrones formula with the multiverse, um, although their rules need to be worked out, right? Like, who gets to live forever and why, you know? Um, I always thought, like, it's just Oberon and his children, you know, that are the immortals and then everybody else are mortals. But how would that work? You know, those people in Amber, like the guy that empties the ashtrays in the library in the first book, you know, uh, he's been around. Corbin's like, oh, I've known him for 500 years. Yeah, he's, exactly. He's just like, he just works there. Or Lord Rain, you know, like, uh-huh. why does he get to live forever? He's not yeah. royal blood. So if they all get to live forever and they're having babies, like, how's it, how's that work? Like, how's the population staying under control? So, you know, and maybe you don't care. Maybe it's just like, oh, it's, you know, it's some kind of like higher plane of existence. And, you know, in the Garden of Eden, everybody lives forever or in Valhalla or Asgard, you don't really question it. But, um, you know, I'd like to think people need to think that stuff through. Yeah, for sure. <sighs> well, um, Really good stuff. I, I've had a blast with this. The to as we wrap up here, I just have to ask you, what are your plans going forward for your podcast? Well, I want to do the Merlin books. Um, I I need some time. I really want to do the Merlin books. Um, I've been making a few notes. I don't know them as well. Um, you know, there was a time when you know I could basically recite Nine Princes and Amber to you. Um, I, you know, it's like not a joke, but I just literally couldn't tell you how many times I read them. Um, I think I read the Merlin Chronicles a couple times through, right? So I need to go back and really dive deep, you know, before I think about that. But I'd like to do that. Um, 
you know, the bed and court books I was thinking about doing, but I, you know, I don't know that I have nice things to say. So if I was feeling like doing a roast or something, um, <laughs> but that could be just, that could just be kind of nasty because I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be mean. And, and, uh, I'm sure he meant his best and did his best. Um, but yeah, like, oof, that was a painful, that was a little bit like a Jar Jar Binks moment for, for me, like, uh, reading those books. But I think, I think I need to do the Merlin Chronicles. I'm just going to need some time. Yeah. Um, there is also the comic book adaptation that DC did back in like the early nineties. I have, have those. And I remember, uh, I think it was maybe Steve Bissett, Bissonette. I forget who the author, but he, I remember one thing he said was he wished he'd had him smoke. He took the smoking cigarettes out of it to make it more contemporary. And that's something to think about for the TV or the movie, right? Is would you have them still acting like they were back in 1970 when everybody's smoking cigarettes? Cause that, that adds a lot of atmosphere and, you know, character to them is that they're all chain smoking all the time and everything like everybody was back then. And if you did it now, they probably wouldn't be doing that. And it, I don't know if it would feel the same. So you know, you're going to keep that noir kind of feel that these books have, which is a interesting. I don't know. Well, also they're immortals too. You know, yeah. so I think that's a an aspect to it. Like, why wouldn't you smoke cigarettes if you know if it wasn't <laughs> going to kill you? Doesn't affect you. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, on that note, any any final thoughts for us before we wrap up? And this is I've had a really fun time tonight. I appreciate you being on. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate you making the time and, and setting this up. And it's so fun for me to talk about the books and, and geek out on them. Um, I just, I hope that the creative team that's got this, you know, uh, this diamond in the rough uh, mm-hmm. really takes the time and is committed to it and develops it. As you say, it needs to be updated. It doesn't just write itself. Um, although there's certain parts of it that are almost written like a screenplay. That yeah. I think there are parts that will just kind of like, fly off the page and in some ways are, are you know he was he was very cinematic in, in some sections but in you know in other parts yeah like it's um it's a big first person monologue or whatever and you're gonna have to figure out how to tell this from multiple angles um so i just hope they you know they take it really seriously and i'm not afraid of of changes Mm-mm. updating you know like i think they just need to be true to the to the core of it and yep. uh and keep Corwin Corwin and, uh, you know, have brothers and sisters fighting over a vacant throne. Like that's, if they keep those elements and the multiverse, like, uh, there's a lot of room to play around with the rest of it. Yeah. Just like Peter Jackson did with Lord of the Rings. You can, if you keep true to the spirit of it and keep the main elements that make it what it is, you can mess around around the edges and it's, it's okay. Yeah. It it doesn't, it doesn't hurt it. It helps. I think that's, that's how I viewed those movies. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, Jonathan, I'm looking forward to uh, checking out your continuing episodes on your podcast when you're able to get back to it. I've really enjoyed them so far. Uh, how can people find your show? Um, All Roads Lead to Amber on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a few others. But just search for All Roads Lead to Amber. And um, my website's a little trickier. It's jkisherenow.com slash amber. There we go. All right. I enjoyed it. I hope to talk to you again soon, and it's been a blast, and I wish you a good evening. Likewise. Thanks, Ben Allen. Goodbye and hello as always. That's right. Cheers. Griffin, uh, Van Quality, Base. here. The Eagle has landed. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.